0: Hey, everybody, good morning. Um, If you don't know me, I haven't been up here in a while. My name is Adam, and I'm on staff here as the pastor of student ministries. It's my job title, which is just a fancy way of saying I get to work with 6th graders through 12th graders. And it's really a joy to be able to do that, to be a part of that. Hey, this summer, we've been going through a series called Vital Signs, as you can see right here. And uh, it's essentially an introspective look at Mission View, at the body of Christ. And some things that we need to know as a church, uh, things that we need to know as we, as we reach out into our communities, as we relate to one another, these sort of things. And so what we've been doing is going through the book of Philippians. And the reason why is because Philippians is a church. It's a, it's a letter from Paul to the church at Philippi. And we can take the principles and the practical application that, that Paul gives to that church and, and transfer it over to our lives now. And so as we've been going through Philippians, uh, we've uh, seen a lot of stuff. We've talked about joy. We've talked about peace. Pastor Steve talked about peace uh, last week. We've talked about the idea of being of one mind and of one accord together. And ultimately, as we'll see in chapter 4 today, go ahead and turn to chapter 4 in Philippians. We're going to talk about God's provision and the sufficiency of Christ. One thing I love about about this book um, is that the church at Philippi was a great church. It was a great church. So it's very encouraging to read this book. There's there's a lot of joy happening, there's there's rejoicing, there's a lot of encouragement that Paul gives to the church. Whereas if you compare it to the last book that we studied, in First Corinthians, it was it was not good. <laughs> the, the the book uh, the letter to the the church at Corinth was a lot more uh, one of, of reprimanding them and 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 saying hey there's all these things that you guys are doing wrong that we need to correct. and the the book of Philippians is much different. Um, we'll have, we'll see here this morning that really this entire book these short four chapters are just a thank you letter are uh, just a thank you letter that Paul writes to the church for supplying his needs. And so uh, just reminding myself of that helps me to understand a lot more of what's going on. Uh, reminding myself of the context of, of each book in Scripture helps me to understand better what Paul is trying to teach us. Um, but despite them being a good church, they still have needs. They still have things they need to work through, areas in which they need to grow. And so I think that Mission View is a great church church. And yet, we still have areas in which we need to grow, things that we need to change, things that we need to to work on together. So go ahead and bow your heads with me, and we're going to pray as we dive into the Word this morning. God, thank you for your Word. Thank you for Scripture, which not only tells us, you know, how to live, but it tells us who we are, and it tells us who you are. I pray that we would take the encouragement that Paul gives to the church at Philippi, and we'd be able to apply it to our own lives, to our own church, to this body of Christ, so that we can have better relationships with you, that we can have better relationships with each other, uh, and a better influence in our community. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, we're in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And uh, we're just going to, there's a lot to cover, so we're going to dive right in. We're in cha- uh, verse 10 until the end of the chapter. And this is what it says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. This is Paul speaking. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, And need, and then he says this in verse 13, which you all have, I'm sure, heard in your lives. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And just right there, I want to pause for a second and do a little side note. Uh, Context is important when you're reading scripture. I'm sure there are five or six people in this very room who say that this is their favorite verse. Uh, And that's great. That can be awesome. But I want to make sure that we understand the context whenever we read scripture. And here's why. Knowing the context makes Scripture more realistic. It makes it seem less abstract and ethereal, fictiony y uh, type of, of literature. And it, it turns it into something more practical for us when you know, for example, that the, the letter to the Philippians was a thank you letter. Or if you know that the, uh, the letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome was sort of a, a support letter. He was asking for funds as he traveled through Rome to try to make his way over to Spain. Uh, he's asking for funds from them. It's a support letter. So if you've ever received a support letter, i uh, be encouraged that there's one of those listed out in Scripture. Now, he does a lot more than that, and he really unpacks the gospel as he uh, goes through that letter, but it, it really uh, helps us to understand the context of what's happening in each one. And we can point to specific historic events. For example, uh, James's letter is to the dispersed Jews all throughout the land who are dispersed due to persecution. And so we can point to historical events and know exactly what what is happening at that time. So uh, the the context makes the Bible more realistic, it makes it more practical, and it helps us to avoid the pitfalls of eisegesis, that is, reading something into the text. It's a fancy word. So eisegesis is is putting your own thoughts, your own uh, preconceived notions into what you read, whereas exegesis is taking things out of Scripture. And we want to be good at exegeting Scripture. Uh, here's what I mean. Um, a lot of uh, churches that have a prosperity style of uh, of teaching, a prosperity gospel, will say that God will, uh, God, if you become a Christian, God's going to make you healthy, God's going to make you wealthy, God's going to bless you in 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 ways that you couldn't even imagine. And they might take a, a verse such as uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven out of context. And you might have heard that verse before. I I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And they forget the fact that that is a promise uh, to a specific people at a specific time in their history. And yes, I do think that God has good plans for each and every individual. Uh, But we need to avoid taking things out of context. Because here's why. A text without context is a pretext For a proof text. I heard that in school and I loved that. A text without context is a pretext for a proof text. And so we don't want to uh, have proof text where we have this idea about something that we think should be true about God or should be true about the Christian faith, and then we search through scripture and find something that we think fits and then we plug it into what we believe. That's called eisegesis. And then finally, number four, context helps us see the whole Bible as one grand narrative, one grand story, the story of God and his relationship to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's important to know as well. And I say that because there are a lot of verses that I think could appear on a uh, a Hallmark card. And I don't want us to be Hallmark Christians where we have one or two verses that we just kind of maybe slap on our, our, like on a magnet on our fridge, and, and that's all we know of Scripture. There is a vast wealth of information about who God is and what God has done for you in this book beyond just the classic I don't want to say cliche verses because all of God's word is inspired and profitable, but there's a lot more out there than just Jeremiah 20, 29, 11 and Philippians four thirteen and John three sixteen. So I would encourage you, if that if your favorite verse is one of those, that's great. Know the context. But also keep exploring Scripture. Keep exploring Scripture. Don't be a don't be a hallmark Christian. All right, that's this little side sidebar about uh, Philippians four thirteen. Uh, next verse. He says, "I can do all things through Him who strengthens me." And then he says this: "Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble." And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then he has some closing thoughts. He says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever, amen. And then he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you as well. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There's a lot in there, a whole bunch. And so I'm going to try to do my best to, to kind of quickly go through it. I've been told uh, that I talk too fast when I'm up here. And also my wife has told me that I'm an edgy speaker. So she's at home. Not really. Um, I think uh, a, really, a really neat uh, word that sticks out to me in this passage is secret. Uh, in verse uh, 12. I have learned the secret of facing plenty, and hunger. And it's also a funny word to me because when I think of like the greatest secrets that you know, we could have as, as human beings or the secrets that we want to uncover as, as humans, there's, there's big grand ones. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? How did I, you know, well, what, what happens when I die? These are uh, grand questions that we have. But um, I also think of shampoo and here's why. <laughs> every, I feel like every uh, shampoo commercial that you ever see, Says something about like the secret to conquering frizzy hair is this, and you you need this shampoo. The secret to have you know, oh Emily's uh, shower uh, uh, shampoo says secret to luscious locks. Love that luscious locks. I'm like that's a good secret. I need to start using that shampoo. So I have. <laughs> I want luscious locks. You know. Uh, the greatest secret that I have in my life is this. Um, you guys are all really excited, I know. When I, was, uh, when I was real little, we used to play hide-and-go-seek with the neighbor kids. And whenever it rained outside, we were usually outside, but whenever it rained, we would do it in my basement. Uh, it was like kind of a large basement. There were a lot of doors and a lot of rooms that you could hide in. And uh, I remember I was really good at it because they would close their eyes and count to whatever, and I would go hide. And I would have such a great hiding spot that they would never find me. And we had a hot tub in our basement, which was super cool. Uh, and then we realized quickly after moving in that it was super expensive. So we drained it and never used it again. But I would climb in there and I would shut the hot tub over top of me and hide there. But I never wanted to come out because then the hiding spot would be ruined for all future uses. So just so everyone knows that in the basement of a house on Stowe Road in Hudson, uh, there's a uh, there's a hot tub. And if you're ever there for any reason, Playing hide and go seek with your friends. um, That's a good hiding spot. Nobody will ever find you. But that's my biggest secret. And Paul's biggest secret is this I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So if you've ever heard me speak, you know I generally like to have three questions. First question what's the secret? What's the secret? Just like with the shampoo, just like with the uh, hiding spot, everybody wants to know when there's a good secret. I want to know, what is the secret Paul's talking about? Number two, how do we get it? Okay, if there's a secret, how do we get it? And number three, what's the result? And that's where we'll look at the, some applications. So first starting with, what is the secret? Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. He starts off speaking from a material or a financial standpoint. What's happening at this point in time is Paul has made his appeal to the Roman government, to Caesar. And so he's been uh, transported to Rome where he's currently now in prison, under guard. And we don't know necessarily whether he's in a, a you know, dirty old prison or if he's under house arrest. Um, scholars think that he was under house arrest for the most part. Uh, But regardless, he is not necessarily a free man at this point. And so he starts off by talking about a, a material or financial standpoint. I'm rejoiced in the Lord that you revived your concern for me. The church at Philippi had brought up a collection and they gave it to Epaphroditus and they, they sent him to Paul bearing gifts, much in the same way that we do. So, I want to let you know that if you ever feel like you come in and uh, maybe you maybe you tithe, maybe you give money to the church and then we pass the offering plate around, and then we think about uh, you know taking up special collections for say, uh, for say a Guatemala total village transformation project, I want to let you know that there is a biblical precedent for that. Uh, the church isn't trying to hit you up for money. The church is trying to meet needs of people that we have relationships with. So the church at Philippi brought up a collection much like we do, and they sent Epaphroditus with it to Rome, to Paul. Then in verse uh, uh, 10 still, he said, you were indeed concerned for me, but at one point you had no opportunity. Why? Because they were poor themselves. The church at Philippi was poor themselves. This is what it says. uh, It doesn't say that anywhere in Philippians, but it does say it in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It says this, we want you to know, Corinthians, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's 2 Corinthians 8, chapter, uh, verse 1-4. through 4. Wouldn't it be great if we were a church that begged earnestly to... Uh, take up another special collection for, for Guatemala or, or what have you. And then Paul uses that example of the Philippians to encourage the church at Corinth. And he says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And so I want to encourage you, no matter what your circumstances are as, as individuals, as families, you too can overflow in a wealth of generosity. Generosity is not a concept that is limited to those who have a lot. It doesn't matter what your financial situation is. And we call that stewardship. We call that being a good steward. Being a good steward of the finances, of the resources, of the time, talent, treasure that God has given you. So whether you have a lot or you have a little, you can still overflow in a wealth of generosity, being faithful with what God has given you. I want to I turn your attention to uh, Matthew chapter 25, and this is Jesus speaking. He's giving parables, which are secrets about the kingdom of heaven, and this is what it says in Matthew tw- uh, 25, verse 14. It's the parable of the talents. Jesus says, For it will be like a man who goes on a journey, and he calls his servants... And he entrusts to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. And he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had one went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came... um, And settled his accounts with them, and he who had received five talents came forward, bringing them and saying, "Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I've made five more." And his master said to him, "This, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he also had the uh, he who had the two talents came forward, saying, "Master, you delivered me two, and I've made two more." And the master said to him, "Well done, good and faithful servant." You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much and enter into the joy of your master. And he who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you should have invested the money uh, with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. To everyone who has more, to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We can be good stewards of the resources in which God has entrusted us. What I think is interesting about that passage is the master says the same exact thing to the servant with five talents and the servant with two talents. Well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't say to the, to the one with five talents, even better job because you have more than who had two. And I'm certain that even the one with one talent, had he gone and been faithful with the money, the master would have said, well done, good and faithful servant. Another note is that they were given these talents according to his ability. And so I think that sometimes in our life, let's uh, say we're speaking financially again. If we look at someone else and say, they have so much, I wish that I had more so that I could give more. If you aren't faithful with what you have now, why would God give you more to be a steward over? Be content with what you have and be stewards over what God has given you in your present circumstances. And Paul echoes this in his letter as well. So the Philippians had this ingrained within them, and then Paul echoes this as well. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Uh, What is the secret? That first question I have, what is the secret? It's contentment. And Paul moves away from just talking about money. Don't forget Paul's circumstances here. He's, He's in prison. He's not a free man. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The Philippians know it. Paul knows it. Actually, I wonder there, uh, who taught who? Paul had planted the church at Philippi and moved on in his method of, uh, of mi- his missionary journeys. He would, he would plant a church and move on and use that church to support him as he planted another, so on and so forth. Uh, and it says, though, that he learned the secret. And so I wonder if that's something that Paul learned from the Philippians. But here's the question of the day, okay? Are you content? Are you content? Are you content not just uh, with financially, but in, in every circumstances? In every circumstance. Uh, one uh, translation says, when your hands are empty and when your hands are full. I also think it's interesting that he puts in abundance and plenty. I didn't know that abundance and plenty were things to, to be faced. He says, I've learned how to the secret of facing plenty. As if, uh, you know, you're going to your Aunt Karen's house and, you know, for Thanksgiving dinner and you're like, man, she's going to have so much food. Pray for me. Pray for me. I need to face it. I didn't know it was something to be faced, but here's, uh, here's why I think it's important that he says that. We tend to ignore and neglect God when we have abundance. When we have everything we need, we ignore God and we neglect God. Uh, I heard a story one time of, Somebody who was, uh, who was late to work, and it was a very important day to be at work. I think they had been late a couple times, and the boss had, had said, if you're late again, you know, there's going to be, something bad's going to happen. And so they're, they're late to work again, and they're driving into work, and they go around the parking lot, and there's no parking spaces. And so they just, they toss up a quick prayer to God. God, please let there be a parking space. Oh, I, you know, if you, I'll really owe you one. You know, one of those prayers, I really owe you one, God. And then somebody pulls out of the parking space right in front of them. They say, oh, never mind, I found one. When we have the things that we need, we tend to ignore and neglect God right away. Right away we do that. If we're being honest, we all do that. Some of you have said, yeah, I feel like I I am content, though. I do feel like I am content. If that's you, I don't want you to confuse contentment with contempt contentment with contempt if you say you have a lot and your family is doing great and you guys come to church and your kids get great, good grades in school and you are feeling so blessed don't confuse being content and glorifying God for what you have with contempt where you totally have forgotten that God is involved in blessing you don't confuse contentment with contempt and then even think about uh, how you relate to the church are you a taker or are you a giver are you a taker or are you a giver? When you, when you arrive to church on a Sunday morning uh, in how you relate to fellow believers, are you a taker or are you a giver? Some of us say, yes, I'm content. Some of us are, are honest with ourselves and saying, no, I don't think I am content. But everyone here, I'm sure, is saying, you know, I, I do want that, though. Wouldn't it be nice if we had the attitude that Paul has and the Philippians have? So second question, How do we get it? The first question, what is the secret? Contentment. Second question, how do we get it? And this is verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Other translations say this. I can do this or all these things, as in these things that I just mentioned, this contentment. I can do this through him who strengthens me. And pay attention to the syntax of the sentence here. This is important. It's the same if you look at it in Greek or whatever. He doesn't say his own strength. He doesn't say, I can do all this through my strength. He doesn't say through his luck. He doesn't say through his sheer will. He doesn't even say, I can do all this financially through budgeting well. He doesn't say, I can do all this through uh, the parenting classes that I'm taking. And these things aren't bad, but Paul understands that he's connected to a power source that is God himself. And this, knowing this can entirely change the way that we see Jesus. And here's what I mean. I think that uh, some of us see Jesus as uh, I think of the scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz, where you walk, maybe you're walking down a road and you're you're looking for heaven and you see Jesus and he's like, "Well, is it over there? Or is it over there?" That's my scarecrow, by the way. <laughs> is it over there? Or is it over there? All, Jesus is like he doesn't say, "Oh, I'll point you some direction to go to have a relationship with God." He points to himself. Jesus, when he did his public ministry on earth, he pointed people to good and right things, yes. But he always pointed to them through himself. He preached himself. He doesn't point them to some idealistic treasure trove of of peace and strength. He points here. Jesus knew that he was the means. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And here's what I mean, this is important. If you want the strength of God that we're talking about here in Philippians 4:13, him who strengthens me, if you want the God of strength, if you want the strength of God, you need the God of strength. If you want the peace of God, you need the God of peace. If you want the joy of God, you need the God of joy. If you want the patience of God, you need the God of patience. If you want the love of God, you need the God of love. And sometimes we divorce the two. Paul so knew that he was connected to the power source that his relationship with God completely eclipsed his present circumstances. In Matthew chapter 5, this is the, the Beatitudes. This is also Jesus speaking in his Sermon on the Mount. I want you to look at this. This is so cool. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying... This is uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word blessed here, it means joy to, or joy to you, blessedness to you. And then there's a present circumstance or present situation, poor in spirit, mourning, meek. And then it shows An eternal situation or an eternal circumstance. The kingdom of heaven, being comforted, inheriting the earth. And each one, if you read through them, follows the same format. And Jesus preaches, you can be blessed, feel blessed, have this joy despite your present circumstances because of your eternal circumstances. You can have joy despite your present circumstances because of your eternal circumstances. I saw this illustration one time. A lot of us uh, confuse uh, happiness and sadness with joy. And if this is us and this is our life, and uh, this this water is the the world we live in, we think that uh, when things are going poorly for us, the world is pushing us down. We even use this language, right? The world's pushing us down. It's pushing us down. Your car died. Your kid is in a rebellious stage rebellious phase of life. You have teenage kids, maybe you know maybe someone in your life passed away. you have this feeling of depression, and the world pushes us down and every once in a while we we feel like there's some some aspect of happiness that that helps to bring us back up. You know things are going well in our life and then we 're pushed back down again and This is how we operate in our lives just based on things pushing us down and lifting us up. But with this tennis ball, there is something inherent within it that gives it a buoyancy to come back up. There is some sort of other force at work here. And I would call that joy. That's my own personal definition there. That there is a buoyancy that comes with understanding your eternal situation or understanding your present circumstances in light of the eternal situation and i want that power source jesus said hey that power source that eternal situation that's me if you want it all you have to do is ask romans 10:13 says this everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved We need to understand that we have a God who so took care of the problem of sin in our lives that he sent Jesus Christ to be the solution for us who bore our sin and shame on the cross, died, was buried with it, and then was resurrected. And now because of that, we can finally have a right relationship with God. And so if you're here this morning and you've never considered that and you want this buoyancy, this joy, you want to be able to understand how to live life in any present circumstance, then you need to understand your eternal situation. And just like that, you'll be connected to the power source. I want to take a second to acknowledge a a criticism that I've heard about Mission View a lot. I've heard people say that Mission View is too gospel-focused. You guys are are so gospel-focused. When are you going to get into the, the, you know, how to save my marriage stuff? Or when are you going to get into the, the practical this or the practical that? But I think Paul talking to the Philippians here and sharing the gospel with them I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me, is so applicable. So applicable that he says, in any and every circumstance. The power source is what drives Paul to be content. And I'd actually wager that the people who are discontent about the way that we do ministry here at Mission View are also the people who are discontent in other areas of their life and need the message of the gospel the most. I personally am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe. So how do we get contentment? Through Christ. How do we get contentment? It's through Christ. Through Christ alone. And Paul says, I think it's interesting that Paul says he learned this secret. He learned the secret. So a little side note about that. There's something that we see scattered all over Scripture, which we will call the uh, already, not yet principle. And if you look, you see it everywhere. Here's a little chart. <clears throat> For example, salvation, or to be saved. There is a sense where we, uh, in an instant, have that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10:13. Justification, or to be put in the right, or to be in the right standing before God, Romans uh, 8.30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Happens in an instant. Sanctification, uh, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, the really messed up church, it says this, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those who are already sanctified. And then glorification, or or, uh, to be perfected. Uh, in Romans 8.30, it says, whom he, those whom he, whom he justified, he also glorified. So in a sense, salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, all these things happen in an instant when you come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, yet they continue to happen in our lives. Philippians 2.12 says this, work out your salvation, their salvation, with fear and trembling, Justification, Uh, in James 2, it says, you see that a person is justified by his works and not by faith alone. Sanctification, Uh, this one's fun. In uh, 1 Corinthians 1, it says, he's to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are already sanctified and yet called to be saints. He says, you're sanctified and you're called to be sanctified. There's an ongoing process there. And then glorification as well in uh, 2 Corinthians 3 we're all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And I bring this up because God is simultaneously the author and perfecter of our faith. And I, don't, I, I say this not to confuse anyone because Paul's connection to the power source happened in an instant. The Philippians' connection to the power source happened in an instant, but there's still a learning process. God is not an ATM where we come and we, we say a prayer and we get saved and then we just kind of take some cash when we feel like we need it. When things go bad in our lives, then you're like, oh, we, we got to go back to church. Quick, turn on some worship music. You can't accept Christ and then disappear from that relationship. There's a progression, a growing to faith, and we call that discipleship. So with that in mind, take a finance class. Read your parenting books. Get a mentor who will, who will guide you in the way of spiritual things. Study the word of God. Be discipled. And just always remember that what we have is given by God himself, the power source and i'm reminded of what paul said to the philippians earlier in the book in chapter 1 he said i am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ so the what is the secret its contentment how do we get it in every uh, any and every circumstance we have jesus all things through him him jesus christ give us strength and then finally The third question, what's the result? What's the result of these things? In verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of uh, of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in the giving and receiving except you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. The result of having contentment because of Christ are that needs are supplied. Needs are supplied. If that's something that you want to be a part of, practically speaking, search for needs. Don't wait for needs to approach you. Don't wait to discover what needs are. Go find out what the needs are in this community, in this church, amongst this body of individuals. Likewise, if you have needs... Make them known to someone. Make them known to the staff. Don't be so proud that you can't make your needs known. What else? What are the other results? Needs are supplied. People receive peace and contentment like uh, like Paul. People become good stewards like the Philippians with what they had. The body becomes unified. Notice he said that they partnered with him in giving and receiving. The gospel is advanced. People have joy, so they rejoiced in being able to give. He then says in verse 17, not that I necessarily seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. People are credited with eternal rewards. People are credited with eternal rewards, and he doesn't dive into what that is or what that looks like. But in the Christian life, what we do here on earth influences the rewards we receive in heaven. And then he says this. uh, The gifts that you sent are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Using an Old Testament metaphor, he says that God is pleased. When you have contentment and you begin to meet the needs of others, God is pleased. And he finally says... God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That God is glorified. What's the secret? Contentment. How do we get it? Through Christ alone. And there there is a progression to faith, a discipleship. But we need to know that we're still connected to the power source. So if you're discontent in your life, be honest with yourself about that. C.S. Lewis said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember the exact quote. He said, uh, if I find myself with desires in this world, that uh, with desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. If you're discontent in your life, the God of strength is the one who will provide you strength. If you're a single mom and you don't know how you're going to make it with your kids, the God of strength will provide you strength. If you have rebellious teenagers, the God of peace will be the one to provide you peace. If you have a depression that nobody can understand because uh, you you feel it uh, in the middle of the night when you're in your room by yourself, the God of joy will be the one to provide you joy. If you have A marriage that's in trouble, the God of love will provide you love. And ultimately, we see the result of all these things in verse 19. God will supply you every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. God, you are good all the time. All the time, you are good. And we acknowledge, God, that we're, we're a mess. We're messed up. We have discontentment in our lives or we have contempt and we tend to neglect you. But you have said that you will provide. That you will provide. And so I pray for a, good, uh, a few things over this body now, Lord, that you would uh, allow us to be good and faithful servants, good stewards over the, re- uh, the resources that you have given us now. And then we can be excited about the blessings and things that you have said come later because we want to be faithful with what we have. God, I pray that we, would allow, uh, that we would find out what the needs are amongst our church and amongst our community and we would make those needs known to each other. That we would all be credited with eternal fruit because of these things. And I pray, Lord, that we can have joy that we can now begin to, to identify the difference between happiness and joy the, and, and develop a, a buoyancy. And ultimately, God, I pray that we would understand our need for the gospel, that our financial situation and our, our marital situation and our family situation and our job situation, all of these things, are just window dressing to the life uh, that we can have with you. I pray that we wouldn't look for God's strength without having God himself. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.